I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through Mark 9, chapter 1. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of uh, Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and the and the others, or and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke again and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they sing the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Thanks, Luke. All right, in Mark chapter 8, we come to some very serious and weighty words here. You could say that the life of Jesus, um, John Stott says, is divided into three parts. First, obscurity, and then popularity, and then adversity. And he's about to go through this transition from popular Jesus to adversity, and his disciples are going to go with him, as it is that the discipleship of Christ as we follow him is through suffering, with him in his suffering. And so as they're used to being disciples of the popular Jesus, he says this very weighty central verse here in verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is not an, an unknown verse to us, but it is a heavy one. It's one that this week as I've prepared to preach it, I've been um, personally wrestling with so much conviction of denying self, taking up my cross and following Christ. This is a very difficult job to do, I think, to preach on this passage. Because the gospel message, the call of discipleship has to pass through me first, but then it's falling on different um, people. Some uh, of you have very sensitive consciences and this idea of carrying your cross um, is difficult for you. You're concerned, am I carrying it enough? Am I suffering for Jesus enough? And you're not sure if you haven't died as a martyr yet, if he's happy with you. Others are very hard to this idea, and you think, well, I just, I'm a Christian, 
and I follow Jesus because I've prayed a prayer, and so that's enough, and you're seeking your own lives. You're seeking the things that are for yourself. And so um, it's not easy to, to not overburden the one yet and, and overcomfort the other, if you know what I'm saying. So we need to let the Holy Spirit do his work in our lives through this idea of denying self, taking up our cross, and following Jesus. So I want to ask you if we will start with prayer, with prayer of um, examination of your own souls, of your spirit, of your heart. If you have a posture of following Christ, um, denying self, taking up your cross. This is not something I can answer for anyone. This is an individual call to follow our Savior. So let's pray. Father, we, we need your presence through your word here at this moment. As we've studied through Mark and we've walked the path with Jesus chapter by chapter and we come to this very weighty moment where you explain what it means to follow you and it's not an easy thing to hear or understand, to grasp, and I pray that you would examine each heart. I pray that you would examine mine. I pray that you would show me in each detail of my life, my time, my money, where I live and what I do with my moments and with my talents and the, the, with my family and the things you've put under my care that I would be found to be denying self and following you, but I fear that there are many areas where I'm not, um, where I've I'm not heard your voice about it, and, and I'm still seeking self, and I pray that you would root out those things, because my heart is to follow you. And I know that this is the desire of many people sitting here, so I pray that their hearts would be both encouraged and convicted, maybe convicted first and then encouraged. Um, that those that are sensitive to your spirit would receive a word from you about how they can be following you and denying self as they desire and continue to try to do that. For those who have not considered much about denying self, that you would speak to them about this, maybe for the first time, about following you in a sort of cross-formed discipleship. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, it's, we're under a cross right now. I am, personally. And the call to follow Christ is under the cross. So Jesus, heading toward the cross, gives this call. It's a very countercultural call. Um, some philosophers say that the culture that we're in currently is one of expressive individualism. And expressive individualism is about the self and about what makes the self to flourish. And the uh, core value of expressive individualism is that nobody can decide what the good life looks like except for you, for the self, the individual. You are the sole arbiter of what is important in life for yourself, which means that you should prioritize self-discovery and more most external prescriptions. The highest aspiration of the expressive individualist is to live authentically, that is to be able to live out your self-selected priorities and desires. We see this 
all over in our culture. If I uh, watch YouTube videos sometimes, prepare for worship as well, and I watch the YouTube videos of that, and I get these ads that come up, and this ad that keeps coming up to me every time this week says, starts with, the most powerful thing in the world is you. That's what it starts with. Um, somebody was asking about my algorithms, what it's saying to me, but uh, the, the, the strong message, you go to Ikea and it's all about, they have, social, they have these messages all over the place with, uh, uh, about the individual and how that each in their variety are to be uh, expressed and respected. And Human flourishing then is defined as living in a community that celebrates all of our uniqueness and differences and that a community doesn't evaluate our choices or have an agenda for our lives. So the role of community is to honor and facilitate whatever choices you make for yourself. And the enemy in the individualist and in the, in the expressive individualism is anyone, whether parent or God himself, who would tell you that your desires are wrong, that you are wrong, that your desires are uh, possibly sinful and need to be corrected. So in the middle of this culture, we, it starts with inward and then goes outward and then upward. So the most important person in the world is the self. And everybody else is evaluated by the self. So if you on the outward are affirming me for who I am, then you are good. And if you don't affirm me for who I am, then you are now the enemy. And God is the same. So it starts inward, then it goes outward, and then upward. Finally, if my God or my version of God does not affirm who I am and what I think and what I feel, then that God is necessarily wrong and I have to change him to conform to me. Here in this passage, Jesus is telling us that that whole culture that we're in is backwards, that we should start with God. And what he says is right and good and true and, and how we're created. And then we should be, then look at others and they should be our priority, and then lastly, ourselves. And so how do we communicate, even to ourselves who have been simmering, especially the younger people uh, that are now in high school and college who have been simmering in this culture, how, does, how do we really let this message of Christ's call to discipleship, to follow him, get deep in our lives? It has to be a radical change, and it has to be rooted out um, because Christ is calling us to die to that self and to follow him. So how could death to self actually lead to your flourishing is the question and to the flourishing of the community, of the family and of the wider church and of our community. How could I possibly do such an impossible thing as dying to myself are some questions that come to mind. And how can death to self be possibly received? as a good and positive, true message to you and in our culture. So the sermon title for today is Good News for the Self, as Alex will show you. And as we go through this passage of verse 27, where we started to chapter one, 9, verse 1, it's going to come to us in three parts, and each part has two facets so one part is centered on Christ and the other part is centered on Peter or us in the place of Peter, the disciple of Jesus. So from verse 27 through 30, we see the identity of the Christ, 
So Peter's confession, on the other hand, so the identity of the Christ where Peter says, you are the Christ, Jesus led him to confess this. And then in the second section from verse 31 to verse 33, we see the work of the Christ. So Jesus says here in verse 31 that he must suffer many things and be rejected and killed and after three days rise again. This is if the confession of who Jesus is, the Christ is based on, that the work of Christ is based on the confession of who Christ is, his identity. But also there's an aspect of discipleship. Now we see Peter again. And we see not just Peter's confession, but now Peter's conflict, that he's coming into conflict with the work that Christ said he's going to do. And then in the last section from verse 34 to chapter 9, verse 1, where Jesus turns to the crowd, we see the call of the Christ. So Jesus is calling the crowd of what it means to be his disciple. And this is a public challenge, not just for Peter, but for the public. So we're going to organize our understanding of this passage in this way. And I think understanding it in that order, the identity of the Christ, the work of the Christ, and then the call to follow the Christ will help us to understand those big questions that I just said. How could, in our culture, and to us, this message of dying to self be possible, number one, and how could it be received by us as being a good thing? So, first of all, in this first section, the identity of the Christ, Jesus uh, asks his disciples, who do man say that I am? Now, during the intertestamental period, 400 years between Malachi, the last prophet, and the coming of John the Baptist, there was no prophecy. And so there were no prophets, and people uh, were waiting for a word from God. The Jewish people were, and Jesus asked his people, or his disciples, as they're walking on the way. If you look at verse 27, it says, as Jesus was walking between these villages, that he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they gave them three answers that were all similar about the prophets. One said Elijah, and then others said John the Baptist, and finally one of the prophets, maybe one of the dead prophets raised alive or a new prophet. And in verse 29, Jesus asked a very pointed question, who do you say that I am? There's a few, um, a few things, I think, initially that we can see about this. First of all, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am, after an extended period of time with them. He had been with them, showing them his miracles and teaching them the, 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 the kingdom and what it looked like and the culture of the kingdom. And so as they followed him, he gave them a lot of proof and time before he asked them this very pointed question. Um, for me, a little bit of application might be as we're beginning our open table nights through our GCs, where once a month we're inviting people to come and just to know us. So as they know us, they're knowing Christ through us. We always want to get to that question, yeah, but who do you say Christ is? And we're going to get there. We want to get there. But we have to remember of all of the time that God gave his disciples to know the Christ before he asked them that hard question, that we need to give people a lot of time and space to know through us and through his word who the Messiah is um, before we jump into that question and before we make that uh, claim. And then he says, and then another thing we can see about this is that personal question, who do you say that I am, 
is the beginning of the good news for the self. The good news for the self is rooted in the identity of the Messiah, that it was God coming to us. So the good news for the self is that God came in the Messiah to restore ourself to the wholeness that we were created in. We talked about back in, I think it was February, we're talking about foundational things. What is discipleship? It is being transformed and renewed into the image of God that we were created in. This is what the, the, the path looks like as we follow Jesus. And it reminds me of a, a mother who is teaching their baby how to speak. And a lot of times I have in my mind a picture of a mom pointing to the baby's dad and saying, Dada, Dada, can you say Dada? And back and forth, the husband, the dad pointing to the mom and saying, Mama, and you could say Mama. So as a child is being raised in a home, little by little they're learning the identity of their parents. But we as followers of Jesus are much more like adopted children who for many years did not belong to God our Father. And now we go through this conflict that we see Peter in about understanding not only the identity of the image of God that he came from in the face of Jesus, but also what that's going to mean for him. And we have adoptive parents in our church. And I told them just the other day, it is a blessing for us to have you because we learned God's love for us through the way you love your children. And um, as we consider what is the good news for the self, it is that that self needs to be re renewed to the image of God in Christ. And that's where Peter confesses in verse 29, uh, you are the Christ. Now in verse 30, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is sometimes called the messianic secret that Jesus was intentionally keeping the secret, and the question is why was he keeping the secret on the way to the cross? And he's about to tell us why in verse 31, because his work had to be accomplished. And if the news was out that he is the long-awaited Messiah, he may not face the cross that he needs to face, that he must face, he says in verse 31. So, um, we, as we see the, the identity of the Christ, um, we are reminded about how he came to restore us to the identity of God that we once were but has been corrupted because of sin. We transition then to, through this messianic secret. He said, don't tell anybody because I must. And any, if, you, if you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to bring your Bible. You might want to underline four verbs that are here in verse 31. Suffer, be rejected, be killed, and the fourth one, which Peter evidently missed, was rise again. So these were the four verbs of the work of the Messiah. And it brings us into our second section is the work of the Messiah. And on the discipleship side of it, Peter's conflict with the Messiah. So verse 32, Peter, he said this plainly. I, thought, I think it's very interesting how Mark says that, that he just very clearly said what his work was. He was not confusing about it at all to his disciples. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This has to be the most, the, the most you know, what do we call it? A lack of self-awareness that ever happened in the Bible where Peter says, hey, Jesus, come, come here with me. Just step over here with me for a second. We're going to come over here, and I want to 
rebuke you for a second. Peter, big mouth fisherman from Galilee, thinks he's going to correct the Messiah who by his word created us and came into this world. Peter's going to take him aside. I can't imagine that, this guy taking him aside. He had to, that had to be like the cringiest moment for the rest of his life as this is written here in Mark and people are reading it and they're like, Peter, really? You did that? And he's like, yeah, I did that. I did that. That, that was me. I did that. So why would he do that? What are you thinking? Um, few things. Peter knew how this would go for him. I think this is maybe one of the reasons that he rebuked Jesus. There had been a previous Messiah Simon, who claimed to be a Messiah, uh, the Messiah, and he, he amassed quite a large following. In fact, more than Jesus. He had 600 disciples, Jewish disciples, just before the time of Jesus. And when the Romans grabbed Simon and killed him, who else died? All 600 of his disciples were killed by the Romans at that moment. So Peter, knowing that if Jesus says he's going to suffer, be killed, and evidently Peter forgets the rise again part, that this is going to be his fate as well as one of his disciples. Um, another reason may be that um, this was not the path of Jewish nationalism. This was not their message. You know, if, if you read the Apocrypha, one of the letters in the Apocrypha is the Maccabees, and there's first and second Maccabees. These were Jewish revolting, um, what, what do you call them, zealots, who wanted to restore the kingdom of David through uh, military means. And so as the Jewish people expected a Messiah, they expected somebody in that sort of vein who would come in a military sort of role and he would resist Rome and he would be more powerful than even King David. He would be the son of David and he would restore this military might and sovereignty that Israel had lost um, in the captivity. And so he surely was expecting that Jesus would do this. We find that out in Acts chapter 1 when they say, when will you restore the kingdom? So clearly he was waiting for that. Maybe another reason was, is found in the, in the expectation of what the Messiah would be that was actually rooted in Scripture. So um, their understanding, or Peter's understanding at least, of the Old Testament Messiah was in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. So I'll read it for you. Daniel wrote, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So this is an important phrase, son of man. This was a messianic title. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So you can imagine you're Peter. This is in your mind about what the Messiah will be. And then Jesus says he's going to suffer and be killed. This does not fit at all with what Peter is expecting from this prophecy. So in verse 33, it says here, but, Jesus, but, tur but, yeah, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Now, so Peter made effort to pull Jesus away, just one-on-one, -on -one, you know, have a little conference meeting, just, 
just an aside, keep, you know, just between me and you. Jesus, in front of, you know, loud voice in front of all the disciples, rebukes Peter. Embarrassing. He's probably like, keep it down, but no, he's not. He's saying it out loud. And he says this in two parts. First, get behind me, Satan. Wow, that's a strong thing to say to a, to a friend. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. First of all, why does Jesus call Peter Satan? Well, in a very literal way, this thought of disobedience to the Father, as the Father is leading Jesus to the cross to suffer, was a temptation from Satan. So Satan was using this rebuke from Peter in the similar way that Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, was now tempting him again to not obey the Father on the way to the cross. And so this thought is Satan using Peter to, to, to tempt disobedience. And he further explains it by saying, for, so because, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So what are the things of God and what are the things of man? Things of God, eternal kingdom. Things of man, earthly kingdom. Things of God, all peoples. Things of man, one ethnic people. Things of God, willing to suffer for the promise. Things of man, unwilling to suffer. Things of God, submitted to God's will and obedience. Things of man, pushing for his own will and his own plan. So this is, this is the, the temptation that, that Peter was speaking. And um, it's not just Peter who has that conflict. So the conflict that Peter experiences is between his confession and his call to painful obedience in the path of following Christ. That is to say that I imagine that you, like Peter, and, and me as well, upon confessing Jesus as the Christ and saying that we want to follow, did not realize the cost that was involved in that discipleship. Um, and so this is the fleshing out of discipleship. It's from the joy of discipleship, which is that first moment that you're a Christian, that you've understood your sins are forgiven, that those brothers and sisters around you are rejoicing with you, and they're excited, and then the cost of discipleship, where no longer do you hear the people praising you and excited for you and happy, but now you're realizing there is a great cost to this discipleship. You might miss the Lions game, for example. Is that going on right now? I don't know. Is that over? I don't watch. I'm not a fan. But um, so Peter is if you, so Peter comes to the cost of discipleship, and it creates conflict in his life. So my question for you, my question for myself, is in the path of following Christ, what conflict is there that the Lord is asking me to submit to, not my will, but his be done? There are some things going on right now in this crowd of people. It's... it's each one of your lives, maybe, you're, maybe you feel that your relationship with God is going very well right now and you are completely obe obeying him. You are bringing yourself under submission to the Christ and putting the kingdom first and all of these things, and that's great. Sometimes that happens. However, a lot of times we spend our Christian life in the conflict between the confession and the cost. 
where we're realizing that Jesus is asking of me something, and this thing is difficult. I don't want to do it. I would rather seek my own will and follow that thing. I, I kind of liken it to marriage. Your wedding day should be a very happy day. If it's not a happy day, your, wedding probably, your marriage probably isn't going to last very long. But it should be a very happy day. Some people describe it as the happiest day of their lives. Um, it should be a happy day, guys, right? But then, you know, we say something on the wedding day, right? When you give your vows, you say your vows, you say, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, till death do us part. And it's looking forward to much harder days in the future, right, of that marriage. So you go through the joy of marriage at the beginning and you enter into the potential for extended illness of a spouse, moral failure that needs forgiveness from that spouse, depression or poverty, and in that relationship, it's called to bear a lot of suffering in order to come out to the other side in joy and happiness. So the following, the discipleship as we follow Jesus is very similar to that. We are called in joy as we receive our sins forgiven, but then there is a moment, there are many moments, I would say, and Paul described it as this when he said, I die daily, that there is sometimes a daily conflict between my desire to not suffer and the call to discipleship to follow Jesus. That leads us directly, I think, into the next passage, that the good news for self will be realized through conflict. Not just through receiving everything I think as being right, but the good news for self will be received and realized through conflict as I follow Christ. The, the, the good news about this, though, that we're going to see, that we saw in verse 31, is that Christ goes through this suffering and this conflict before us. That he goes with us and before us. We're going to talk more about that in a second. But the question is, have you pushed your way and come to an end of yourself yet? So, some people are, take a longer time to get to this than others. To realize that there, uh, in my flesh is no good thing. And to realize that the things that I want are leading me to my personal suffering. So, my question for you, as you're listening to Jesus' words here, is have you pushed your own will to the point of your own suffering yet? To where you have realized that pushing for my own will hurts me. And it's not leading to my happiness. And that you've observed Christ long enough to realize that he, his will will lead, even though through suffering, to joy. And if you haven't come to that point, I don't think you're going to be able to receive the next words that Jesus says. And this is what he says, and this is the third section. This is the public challenge. So in verse 34, he calls the crowd to himself. Now, I think Mark could have been bringing together different events of teaching in the life of Jesus. It didn't necessarily have to be that right after Jesus says this, then he pulls a crowd to him. It could have been that through all the teaching that this, is, this goes together with what he just said to Peter and to the disciples. And he says it to the crowd. Now, why would he need to say it to the crowd? Because this call of discipleship, of following Christ, 
taking up our cross, denying self, is not a message for church leaders or apostles only. This is a general call to discipleship for anyone who would follow Jesus. So he says it to everyone. If you want to follow Jesus, there's no like special suffering category and then health and wealth category. There's only one category of discipleship, and that is denying self, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. So that's why he, I really think he says it to the whole crowd. It's not something just for missionaries, pastors, and Sunday school teachers. It is for, for everyone who he says here in verse 34, if anyone would, if anyone would, these, these very specific words I almost named, called the sermon, good news for anyone who would, because it's an open invitation, the only requirement is that you want it. So if you find yourself today saying, yes, I want to follow Christ, then this requirement and this instruction is for you. And if you feel that want, then it's because of God's grace to give you that want. And so as we come here to this, anyone would, it should be a joyful thing to say that I want it and that is good news to me. So good news for the self is that if I desire Christ, he's put it in me. And he says what we need. So verse 34, we come to the, the key verse of the, what I think is a key verse of, for us today as disciples. If anyone would come after me, and then he gives three things. First of all, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and follow me. So what do these three things mean? I think the follow me is the most obvious part. They were physically following Jesus. Today we cannot physically follow Jesus, but that might be the most obvious of what it means to follow Jesus. But what does it mean to deny the self and to carry your cross? We had a conversation about that on Friday, so we're going to talk for a second about what it means to deny yourself. Um, this is... Uh, a negative command, and then a visual illustration, and then a positive command. So deny yourself, this is negative. You have to deny something. Carrying your cross is a visual illustration of the negative command, and then the positive command is follow Jesus. He doesn't just give us this negative thing, say don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. He says don't please yourself. By way of illustration, carry your cross. Positively, do follow Jesus. And so what does it mean to deny self? Self is a word in Greek. It's a simple word, auto, that we have for ourselves. It's just it's reflexive. It means the self. There's another word for self used here in verse 35 where it says for whoever would save his life. You could say whoever can save his self. It's the word psyche, so who we are. So how do you deny who you are? First of all, could that possibly mean we should deny that we know ourselves? You know, Peter denied Jesus. So if somebody comes to you and, and, and you know, if you, if you were, they would think that you're um, insane if you denied to know yourself. Or does that mean that, you know, there's a very strong sort of reticence among Christians many times towards psychology because we think it focuses on ourselves too much and sometimes I suppose it can, but does that mean that we should deny the importance of the self? Um, I think not lest we be in the realm of crazy to deny that we exist. Secondly, does it mean possibly denying my identity as myself, my rooting of who I am in my culture and in my family and in my background? 
I don't think so. Paul didn't lose the fact that he was Jewish and a Roman citizen while he was um, probably the most often of New Testament writers to talk about death to self. He did not lose that part of what it meant to be a Roman or what it meant to be a Jew. So it doesn't mean you need to stop being whoever, you know, if, uh, that identity that you have from birth. So does it mean to deny caring for yourself? I was with at campus on InterVarsity last week, and they have a self-care booth where you can pick up uh, toothbrush and toothpaste and different things that students need for self-care. I don't know what those, I don't remember actually what they are. I think it was a few breath mints, if I'm not mistaken, as well. So does denying the self mean that we should deny self-care? Is the person in sin who exercises or takes their vitamins or brushes their teeth? Because that's caring about the self, not denying the self. I don't think that's what that means because the Bible does tell us in 1 Corinthians 6 that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Ghost who lives in us. So our bodies are not an evil thing that should be denied. Um, fourth, maybe it means that we should deny all of our desires. Should um, do the self or the psyche that desires things, are they all wicked and should they all be denied? For example, should we all be wearing black and white uh, clothes only so that we don't um, wear the colors that we desire? Or maybe we should eat only bland food because... Um, we should not enjoy food because that's a self-desire. Maybe it means that. Um, certain Amish people will only drive trucks that are completely black, so they'll paint the bumper black, and they are called black bumper Amish. I don't know if you've heard of these types, but they will drive cars, but they have to be black. And so they refuse the self by refusing color, by refusing enjoyment. Well, I don't think... That's what is consistent with God's word because 1 Timothy 6 says that God has given us richly all things to enjoy. So I don't believe he's saying don't enjoy things or have desires or likes. So what could it possibly mean to deny the self? Based on this context and all that we know in the New Testament, I want to give you a simple definition. To deny self means to subordinate the will of the self to the will of the Father. So to deny self means to subordinate the will of the self to the will of the Father. Can you think of someone who said a very short, pithy saying that might help define that? Jesus going to the cross in Gethsemane who did not, the self did not want to go to the cross. That human part of Jesus did not want to suffer. And he says, nevertheless, not my will be done, but thine. This is, I think, the power for the Christian to deny the self is that our Savior, who perfectly obeyed through suffering, denied the self. So um, here's what that might mean for you. I want to be married, but I'm not. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. I want to keep this money for this thing or that thing, but the Lord is urging me to give it. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I don't want to spend myself, my time, and my efforts on strangers and refugees and foreigners and people who are in need, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I don't want to put up with the spouse you've given me anymore, Lord, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. A million different things in life. In fact, it's daily 
the, the desire for self that it should subordinate itself to Christ. So then what does carrying the cross mean? Now, um, carrying the cross is a symbolic thing. because We know it's symbolic because one interpretive strategy is look to the old to the way that people understood the words, what did they do? The disciples of Jesus obviously did not go and make for themselves crosses and start carrying them around as a show of piety. So carrying your cross did, was something that was symbolic. And in verse, the next verses, 35 through 38, he tells them what it means to carry your cross. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It means to lose your life for Christ. So my question for you is, are you seeking self in your career, in your studies, in your choices? Are you seeking self or are you saying, Christ, you guide me, my life is yours? Some students that are facing decisions of what you're going to study in college or what you're trying to change your major to, do you stop to think, Lord, what do you want? My life is yours. You've bought me. I can't save it. You tell me what you want me to do. Regardless of how much money I'll make or what kind of fame or, or honor I'll get, Lord, you tell me what to do. He continues and says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? We, we heard Aubrey read Psalm 49 where it says, A person could not possibly pay for his eternal soul. In verse 38, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the angels. This almost seems out of place until we realize that one thing that Peter was trying to avoid was the shame that came with the cross. The shame that came with his, his leader dying on the cross. And in fact, in a few days, he would deny Jesus as he was put on trial and then crucified. And so, um, Jesus reminds them that this is, a, this is so important. I think this is part of what hit me so much this week as I study this passage, that this is not just a light thing we're talking about. Because if we deny Christ here on this earth, and if we think that we're disciples of Jesus, but really we're just following self, and we're not denying self and following him, then the stakes are really high. They're so high, in fact, Jesus said, if you whoever is ashamed of me, meaning whoever does not deny self but, and follow me, I will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the angels. So as way of conclusion, chapter 9, verse 1 is our conclusion today uh, because this verse, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here some of them being three of the disciples in particular, Peter, James, and John, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What was that event? Next Sunday, we're going to read the transfiguration. They saw the king in all of his glory. The kingdom of God came with power, and they saw it with their eyes. So what could a person possibly need to deny self Take up his cross and follow Jesus in a generation that we live in that loves the self so much more than God. We would need a clear and fresh vision of the glory of Christ. That's what, P, that's what he graciously gave Peter, James, and John that started the church in such a powerful way because they saw Jesus glorified. 
And he told them, we're going to talk about this next week. They said, don't tell anybody until after my resurrection. But they saw his transfigured glory. So possibly, we could say, what will help us to live up to this idea of denying self, taking our cross today and following Jesus? We need a fresh and a real vision of the glory of our Savior. My, one of my favorite ways to understand what God did, what, what it's like to follow Jesus, is if you, t- if you take a needle and you attach it to thread, the needle goes through the cloth, and as the needle travels through, the thread follows it and is attached to it. So if you imagine Christ going through suffering and he comes out on the other side to glory, if Peter could have only understood when Jesus said, I must suffer, I must be killed, but I will rise again, that he knows that he's connected with the Savior, what that means for him is eternal glory. Paul says this in Romans 8, that if we suffer with him, we shall surely reign with him. So as you're facing this day today and the decisions you have to make with your life, if, you, if you're like those anyone would, if you are one of those who would follow Jesus, and all that you know he is asking you to do, I wonder if you would pray today for a fresh vision of the glory of your Savior. Because this world fights against that. It doesn't want you to see Christ for who he is. It doesn't want him to be high and lifted up. Not in this church and not in your life. And in a little bit, we're going to vote on a a new elder and a new deacon in our church. That's a a number of things we're going to do. And um, as a way of expressing why we do that, these are men, and I've watched them over the last few weeks pray and think about it with their wives who have thought, you know, I would probably rather do different things with my time. But the Lord is calling me, and there's a cost to it, and I want to follow him. And it's not just those leadership positions in the church. There's all service for Christ that we do on campus, here in the church, in our neighborhood. What is it today that God is calling you to do? You need a fresh vision of the resurrected Christ for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you gave and you give such confidence in the resurrection power of Jesus to take us through suffering to glory. Father, my desire is that my life would be pleasing, that, that I would deny self. It's very difficult in such a materialistic world to know if I am. So I pray that you would speak to each of us afresh and tell us, what, do you, what are we doing with our time, with our money, with our days, with our moments, with our relationships? Are we denying self? taking up our cross, and following you. In Jesus' name.